In the second lecture, I looked at Sir Henry Maine, if you remember, and I suggested that he developed a theory of groups turning into individuals, of communities turning into non-communities, and particularly of status turning into contract. An evolutionary framework which saw not necessarily a, a development everywhere, but in some parts of the world, and this is why he was not a straight evolutionist, in some parts of the world there had been a development from one kind of system to another, from communal ownership also to private property. It was a brilliant insight by a Cambridge lawyer in the second half of the 19th century, but it isn't entirely satisfactory, and there are various critiques which I'll come into now. Now, the next point to make is that Maine was just one of many people in the second half of the 19th century who were saying this kind of thing. He had a, quite an influence on others. For instance, Tony's, with some of you. Do any of you know the work of Tony's? Um, he developed the concept of the movement from Gemeinschaft, that is, community. Um, Gemeinschaft community. The only way to remember that is that it's like mineshafts and it's counterintuitive like Durkheim. Mineshafts are the simple societies who have closeness, closeness in their lives, blood and community. And our society is characterized by Gesellschaft, which is association, contractual relations. And he drew a lot of his inspiration from Maine as well as from Hobbes. He was one who saw the there are two types of civilization, Gemeinschaft societies, which is what most anthropologists study traditionally, and Gesellschaft, modern associational studies. Marx really said the same thing. This is why he's, uh, Engels claimed that Maine was pilfering his ideas, because basic, the basic opposition in Marx is from communal property, group behavior, we are all part of a herd, to modern individualistic capitalism where people can own their own labor and their own assets. So private property and the development of individual responsibility is the great dynamic in Marx as well. Likewise in Durkheim, from collectivism to individualism, from mechanical solidarity to organic solidarity, as I described last term. And you find the same in other thinkers of that period, Sir Henry Morgan, from barbarism to civilization, the development of private property and so on. Now that's all very well. But there are two big problems about it. One is that there's no explanation of why or how it happened, or no satisfactory explanation. Either the historical reasons for it are overlooked, forgotten. For example, Durkheim really doesn't have any theory about how it happened. Um, Tony's doesn't have any theory of how it happened. Or it's assumed that it had to happen. There was some teleological, as they say, goal-directed aim and this is, of course, underpins Marx. There is an inherent tension within any mode of production which will automatically lead on. So apart from the unfortunate bypaths of the Asiatic mode and others like that, certainly in most civilizations there's a necessity. The, the group breaks down, the individual emerges, private property grows and grows and grows. For Marx, of course, that wasn't the end of the process. You then went back to communalism, the community, and groupism in communism, but you 
the stages up to that were necessary. But no one is really entirely satisfied with that, and no one really understands what was the inner dynamic, for example, in the early forms which destroyed the integrity. How did, you, how did human beings emerge from hunting and gathering, for example, or tribal societies? Uh, and there's all sorts of other problems. Or Sir Henry Mayne really saw it as an accident in one part of the world through feudalism, as I explained. So there are those kinds of problems of historical understanding of how our world emerged. But there's also a feeling I've had for a long time that it doesn't really describe our world. We don't live, as I'll point out in more detail, in an atomistic, individualistic world where property is owned freely by individuals and nothing bigger. Everything we do in our lives is conditioned by belonging to all sorts of associations, groups, and so on. And our property, as I pointed out, is really very much constrained. We have little things. This video camera, for example, belongs to the Department of Social Anthropology, but I have some use rights in it. But there's very little that one actually owns privately. Even in marriage, one shares property and as a child one shares it with one's parents. All through one's life one is sharing things and one has nested rights in them. So I now want to look at a, a solution to these two questions of how our modern world emerged how, uh, and what it is. And also um, so a solution to Maine's problem in a sense, but also the missing bit of my lectures on classical theory, which some of you came to. Um, where I took the problem and puzzle of the riddle of the modern world from Montesquieu to Gelmer, and I didn't quite give the solution. And I, in the next 45 minutes, I want to give the nearest I think we can get to a solution of these problems. Um, the solution, I think, lies in an unusual place. It lies in the life of a elderly, dry, Cambridge Don. I was going to put up a, a slide of his uh, face, as I usually do, to give you a sense of him, but it would probably be easier if you passed it round as there's so few of you. This is a man called F.W. Maitland. Have any of you heard of F.W. Maitland? No? Okay. Well, this is your chance to learn about one of the great minds of the end of the 19th, early 20th century, and also to pay him the honour he is due, because Possibly without him you wouldn't be at Cambridge University. Um, he was one of the people who was keenest on bringing women into the university. And this is, for example, um, a poster of the early part of the century. The University for the Undergraduate. Maintain the integrity of Cambridge. Beware of the thin end of the wedge. Down with women's degrees. Down with the faddists. Down with Maitlandish mixtures. The last bit refers to the fact that Maitland actually said, let's have women in this university and give them degrees in about 1900. And he was Downing Professor of Law and uh, quite influential and a good politician. So he was an advocate of, of this. Um, you can have a look at that. So he is a, a great man, but much forgotten. He's just been remembered, in fact, uh, in Westminster Abbey in Poets' Corner, where they put great people the only professional historian who's ever been honoured in that way was F.W. Maitland, who earlier this year they opened a, uh, a special plaque to him on the floor. Uh, and this is the first time any historian has ever got into that high rank or professional historian. So it, he is recognised, but he's a very obscure historian uh, in many respects. 
and he's been misunderstood as just a historian or a lawyer. And what I'm going to try and show you is that he was, in fact, much more. And he was the person who, much more than Durkheim or Maine or anyone else, helps us to understand property and corporation. So who was he? Well, he was F.W. Frederick William F.W. Maitland. F.W. Maitland, he was born in 1850. He was educated at Eton and Trinity College, Cambridge. There's a plaque to him in Trinity, in the Wren Chapel at Trinity. Um, he was deeply influenced by John Stuart Mill, the political philosopher, and de Tocqueville. And he tried to get into Trinity with a prize dissertation on the history of liberty and equality from Hobbes to Coleridge. He failed to get his Trinity Fellowship and not being very rich, he went off and practiced law in London. But his, that dissertation gives you a key to what he was really interested in, which is political philosophy, equality and liberty. So he's in the great tradition. But having become a lawyer, he then um, wasn't terribly successful at that. And when he was offered a readership in Cambridge in 1884, he came back here and later became the dining professor of law at Downing College in 1889. He then, he was then about uh, in his late 30s um, and, well, 34, 35, and it was only then that he started writing his great works and in the next 15 years or so he proceeded to write almost more than any modern historian has ever written, something like 5,000 pages of printed detailed text in which there's hardly a line uh, which isn't brilliant or accurate. There's hardly anything wrong with it. But some of his works are mentioned in the reading list here. And this was set against a background of illness. He was ill almost from the beginning, and in the last six years of his life he had to summer or spend his winters away from Cambridge, the Canary Islands, because of his illness. He had tuberculosis. And he died tragically at the same age as, as uh, Max Faber, the age of 56, in 1906. So a very short life and towards the end a very productive one. Uh, and he is of the same stature as Max Weber, I think, and much higher stature than, than Durkheim and even Maine. Everything he writes is brilliant, uh, but it's been drowned under the, the fact that it's couched in legal, in, in the form of legal history. His greatest book, or the book that's, if anyone knows any of his work, they'll talk about Pollock and Maitland. Pollock was also a lawyer, and they wrote a history of English law in two volumes, um, which was published in 1895. It's, it's something like 1,300 pages long, and it only takes the history of law up to Edward I. And Pollock only wrote one chapter, but Maitland being who he was, um, it still allowed him to call it Pollock and Maitland. Of course, it should be Maitland. And his greatest book probably is a book called Doomsday Book and Beyond in 1897. But I've referred to one or two of his essays if you're interested in following him up. Now, why is he so interesting and important? Well, I can only go into a little bit of his thought, but I want to go into the bit that I think takes us to the heart of his message. And this was something he only developed towards the end of his life. 
He was trying to understand what was wrong with Maine. Why, why is that characterization of our world as a competitive, individualistic, private property world not a true representation of what we are? And he started off with the universal need for some kind of group which will coordinate individuals. This, of course, is Durkheim's problem too. What will bind people together in an industrial modern society when they've been split apart? Because of the increasing complexity as civilizations develop, it becomes essential that people work together. You, none of us would get anywhere if we just sort of sat in our room uh, as individuals. The problem for Durkheim and for all great social thinkers is that the groups which had provided this integration at the beginning, which had a, an embodied or corporate nature, as I've explained to you, were based on family bonds or on birth, on status, either on blood through caste or usually through kinship and clan. But as civilizations become more complex, you can't run them on the basis of family and kinship. It doesn't provide a wide enough network. You can try, as in many societies, by generating kin. You can have fictive kinship, you can have adoption, you can have the sort of thing that you find particularly in Catholic um, Mediterranean influence cultures where you create all sorts of godparenthood and fictive kinship. But even that usually doesn't provide enough and it's too rigid. So what happens in most societies is that you set up corporations which are not based on actual blood, which have a collective legal existence and break the bonds of the family. Town governments, religious orders, trading associations and many others which are needed to establish a unity which is greater than the loose individuals who share to a certain extent their property and their being. But the problem is that when these things are set up as a civilization using the wealth that is generated by these groups um, and this kind of incorporation, all these things get taken over by the state. The state, ultimately, any kind of uh, organization, sub-organization in a society, has to be given legitimacy by the state. So you have the state here, and the state says, all right, you can have a religious order, you can have a town government, you can have a trading association, we will give you a license to set up some sort of grouping like that. As Maitland says, the corporation is and must be the creature of the state. And he uses, he's a wonderful use of metaphors, uh, this is a typical Maitland one. Into its nostrils, the state must breathe the breath of a fictitious life. For otherwise it would be no animated body, but individualistic dust. Individualistic dust, just little motes. To make it into a body, a living thing, the state has to say, yes, you can have a charter, you can set this thing up. Power, in other words, is conceded from the king, the emperor, the pope, to a set of people by actual charter or an implicit charter. This appears to be the only way to move from tribal civilizations towards complex state formations. But what Maitland realized, having read de Tocqueville and all these other people, is that the path through these kinds of state corporations set up by the state 
has an inevitable danger about it. It leads into a deadly trap from which there seems to be no escape. At the beginning you set up all these things and the state is quite happy to see all these organizations and money coming in from the traders and the towns and so on. But gradually, as they get more powerful, the state sees them as a threat or wants to take charge of them or wants to milk them. So at the start you have flexibility and creativity consisting of many groups as you had for example in medieval Europe or Islam licensed and linked to the state yet increasingly as the technology and wealth grows the state begins to absorb these groups it has the right to do so because after all it is the only legitimation for them and it has the interest to do so for it hopes to absorb their wealth and power and not see them as a threat this, for example, I think I talked about in relation to France and much of continental Europe between about the 12th and the 18th century, the French Revolution. This is exactly what was documented as happening. All the estates, all the sub-delegated powers were brought back into the centre until you had l'état, c'est moi. The state is me, Louis XIV. Everything bundled together in the state. In other words, and this is all talking about something which nowadays would be called civil society, civil society is destroyed. Civil society in this sense means you have the state, you have the individual, and you have organizations which are neither individual nor state between, non-governmental organizations in another terminology. That is civil society. And that is what gradually all states destroy because it's in their interest to do so. So the state absorbs civil society and communism is the extreme version of that. And the French Revolution is another. The French Revolution, an anticipating communism and building itself on the totalitarian views of Rousseau, um, which believe that the general will should dominate over individual wills, proclaimed in the pro famous proclamation of August the 18th, 1792, a state that is truly free ought not to suffer within its bosom any corporation not even such as being dedicated to public instruction have merited well of the country so you mustn't have universities you mustn't have charitable trusts you mustn't have anything because that stands between the citizen and the general will this is quoted by Maitland now Maitland was writing um, at the end of the 19th century, if he'd seen the horrors of the 20th century, if he'd seen fascism, which basically means bundling up, fascisti means bundling up all these kinds of associations into the state, if he'd seen left-right-wing uh, fascism uh, in Italy or Germany, or if he'd seen left-wing fascism, the results of Marx in, in Russia or China, he would have been even more convinced of the argument that that's what powerful states do. Um, they absorb civil society. But, and so he was really horrified by the, the only apparent escape, which is through corporations. He said, he wrote a letter in 1900 saying, the subject of my meditation is the damnability of corporations. I rather think that they must be damned. 
and he writes, he thinks one day I'll write a great book called De, De Damna Militate Universitas, Universitas, Universitas means corporation, on the damnability, damnation of corporations. Well, he died before he could do it. It was half a joke as usual we make him, but that's, he really thought that this path of state-based corporations was a treacherous and dangerous one and it led to the destruction of civil liberties and everything else on much of the continent even before Hitler and Chairman Mao arrived. The social and political trap which had halted all civilizations is quite simple and it's very simple, uh, similar to what I was describing in relation to my lectures on Ernest Gellner and his predecessors. As they become more successful through improved technology or other means, the wealth which has an initially flowed into productive subgroups or corporations um, begins to flow upwards. The state revokes charters and absorbs the wealth and power to the top of the social hierarchy. So you get increasing hierarchy and increasing absolutism. And this is what has been was doc documented by thinkers from Montesquieu through to Gellner. And it seems to be a universal law of human civilizations. Yet somehow, to the amazement of all of us, something different has emerged and can be seen now represented in what we call by all sorts of terms like democracy and so on in America and in the West. How was this trap broken? Well, Maitland saw, began to see the clue to this mystery towards the end of his life. And he's never, he was never able, because it was when he was ill and he was just writing little bits, he was never able to develop it into a great synthesis and that's why it's been forgotten, I think. Um, what he found was a development that was accidental, unexpected, a chance variation, no inevitability about it, but with tremendous unintended consequences through time. It led to a positive rather than a negative feedback, that is to say, as wealth increased and technology improved, it fed back into civil society rather than into the state or into private hands. And it therefore was behind the great transition which had led to the Victorian world which he knew. Just four years before his death he wrote to a friend in great excitement of a matter of great historical importance, namely the extreme liberality of our law about charitable trusts. As he put it, in practice a person who is setting up such a trust is acting like a king or emperor, that is setting up a fictitious person the point is that when you're born into a clan or a kinship group, it's a real group in the sense that it's blood-bound. But, f but um, corporations, and particularly trusts, have a collective identity, but they're fictitious. They're set up by an act of will by someone. And this had immense potentiality, for it was done privately, as he puts it, without asking leave of the state. And what the state has not created, it hasn't the power to destroy. So you bypass the trap of state intervention in civil society. People could pool their talents and share their risks and become powerful and rich, and the state could not absorb them by revoking their implicit or explicit charter. A positive loop could emerge whereby wealth fed back into the middle of a social hierarchy, the bit that was growing around civil society, without it 
inevitably leading up towards more hierarchy and absolutism. This is perhaps the single most extraordinary and important invention of the last thousand years, he thinks, and I think he's probably right. Um, what is fascinating about his work is that he not only showed how it happened, but also the immense consequences. In the last three years of his life, he wrote to several friends about his discovery. The idea of a trust is so familiar to us that we never wonder at it. I don't suppose you've ever thought about trust, have you? No? No, I hadn't really before I became a trustee and started my middle, middle life. But um, once I started focusing on it, I suddenly realized how important it is. And it's now important in anthropology. There's quite a lot of work on trust and civil society and anthropology. It's so familiar to us that we never wonder at it, and yet surely we ought to wonder, he says. And indeed, as an anthropologist like myself who has studied India, Japan, and various tribal societies, I'm also amazed at the strangeness of a non-kinship trust that is involved in the trust. He says, if, I were asked, if we were asked what is the greatest and most distinctive achievement performed by Englishmen in the field of jurisprudence, that's law, I cannot think that we should have any better answer to, than to give this. The development from century to century of the trust idea. He was quite aware of the jury system of uh, common law and all the other things in English law, but he thought this was the most important single thing. He said, it's the greatest feat that men of our race have performed in the field of jurisprudence. He says, I don't know whether I'll ever be able to show this, but it ought to be shown. And within three years he was dead. And no one has carried on this work, so it's up to you folks. Now let me explain what he found. The accidental bit is fascinating and will sh show you something about law. In the 14th, 13th, 14th century in England, lawyers came up with a new solution to an old dilemma. An English person can't re leave their real estate, that's their land and estates, by a will. There were no wills available. Yet they often wished to do so. You can imagine a big landholder who owns a, a nice park and estates and so on um, up here and he would like to give it to so-and-so, his cousin or his, his uh, second son rather than his first son or whatever it is. He can't do this. You can't leave real estate by will. Also, he knows that when he, usually he, but also she dies, um, it, if it's a big estate, it's, it's held of the king, and, and the king will hold it for a while, take half the wealth out of it, and then it will be descended. So he'll lose an enormous amount in estate duty. Um, a large relief or tax will be taken from him. And if, he, if there's no proper heir, then the whole estate will go off to the king. So lawyers began to wonder, how can we get round this? And they devised a very cunning, simple device, which was this person here doesn't just die and leave it to the normal procedure. He, as it were, rings up his friends and says, would you mind being a trustee? I'm setting up a fictitious entity called a trust consisting of half a dozen or a dozen of my closest friends and people I really like and uh, uh, trust. 
I'm leaving you the property on paper, it's yours, you can do what you like with it. You can sell it, you can bequeath it, you can do anything you like. Actually, I do hope that through our friendship and through the trust I have in you, you will give it without any taking any of the money away from it to my middle daughter. This is my will and so on. I can't force you because I'll be dead, but I trust you enough to do this. So when the king comes along, and this person dies and has a look at this. Where is this property? This property is owned by a dozen powerful living people. So he can't do anything about it. These people then, while they're alive, they say, we don't want this property, we're going to give it to this person's daughter. And it goes down to the daughter. Um, so this is the very simple device that's developed in the 13th, 14th centuries. And it becomes something which is protected by English law, and particularly by the most powerful lawyer in England, the Lord Chancellor, who takes it under his special wing. I mean, there's a certain financial advantage to do this, but um, on the whole, it's to protect the rights of, of people to do what they would like with their property. So the device prospered and became very popular in the 14th and 15th centuries, strongly supported by the Lord Chancellor in the equity courts. He enforced these honourable understandings, these uses, trusts or confidences as they were called. It was an extraordinary development. As Maitland says, the whole nation seemed to enter into one large conspiracy to evade its own laws, to evade laws which it had not the courage to reform. Everyone was in this conspiracy, but it was a random accident. Fictitious persons had been set up. This is a fictitious person, a trust, but not by the king or anyone else, but by a private individual. And it only happened on this island. Now, it gradually crept up and got more and more popular and more and more powerful until suddenly one of the most powerful kings in English history noticed what was happening, Henry VIII, that basically civil society was developing very powerfully in the middle ranks. And he brought in a statute of uses, which uh, in the 1530s, to try and crush this. He outlawed all this kind of activity. But it was too late. There were too many people who had too many fingers in this pie. And as soon as he died, um, people said, well, he didn't really mean it. He didn't know what he was talking about, and let's bring it back. So it was brought back. And so you get this development of something which is extraordinarily difficult to understand. In fact, even the greatest lawyers, continental lawyers of the time of Maitland, couldn't understand how this worked. It seemed to fly in the face of all reasonable law. It was a hybrid kind of solution which bridged various gaps. It was halfway between status and contract, between people and things. And so the greatest of uh, German lawyers of the late 19th century, Gierke wrote to Maitland saying, um, I do not understand your trust, because it, it seemed to um, fall across all the divisions of law on, on, in continental law. It mixed up the law of obligations and the law of things, the mix, mixed up the law of people and objects. But it provided a kind of shell or protection round which uh, around property. And 
if you're interested in the technical aspects of it, which are not really susceptible to being explained in words very simply, then have a look at one or two of the essays I've suggested by Maitland. But the important thing is not really how it occurred, but the fact that once it had occurred, and by the 16th century, it was beginning to have trem tremendous effects on all sorts of things which you probably haven't even thought about and the world we live in. So, as you know, um, in my lectures I always stop for a pause, so the people who are watching this... What effects did this odd institution, and it's uh, an example of where a legal, very technical legal matters to do with property and who owns property and how you can transmit property and who owns and who belongs to a fictive group has immense consequences on a civilization. Well, the first effect was on political liberty. In effect, it became the basis for the development of democracy in England and then in America and then in the modern world. He puts these views into the words of an imaginary continental lawyer who observed that the trust concept and the formation of powerful non-governmental organization such as the Inns of Court, all the lawyers' um, organizations in the 17th century were trusts, the Inns of Court in London. So when Charles I tried to destroy democracy in the, just before the Civil War, the people who stood up against him were the common lawyers who were organized around the Inns of Court, and they could have a place they could go, they could discuss, the police couldn't come in, no, nothing could be done about them. And so that helped to tip the balance against Charles I and, uh, in the run-up to the Civil War. It also um, encouraged and strengthened local government at every level, parishes, um, towns, districts, all of local government were based on delegated powers to organizations which were have a, an entity and couldn't be interfered with by the state. Thus the decentralization of power, as Tocqueville has stressed, was one of the greatest strengths of England and America, and something that Tocqueville wondered at when he came to those two countries, and which he associated directly with these quasi-associational groupings. Another way in which it feeds into democracy was through political mobilization. The political clubs, which were so important in 18th and 19th century England, the, the clubs for the Whigs and the Tories and so on, but not just the upper-level clubs, the trades unions, the trade union movement which developed in this country and nowhere else for the first time, was made possible. Trades unions were, in effect, trusts, they all um, model themselves on this idea. And at a larger level, um, Maitland noted that the peculiar concept which lies behind democracy, that the rulers are only holding power temporarily in trust for future generations, it stems also from this idea. This is a much a wider idea. In most societies, the king just gets it by birth or is... Uh, a representative of general will, and they can, the king or whatever, the emperor or chairman Mao, can do what they like, really. There's no idea of a trust. But the oddness of the political systems of the West for a century or two has been a widespread view that Tony Blair doesn't run, own this country. He's just there as long as we trust him and we feel he's doing what he should be doing. And we know 
that after a short time we'll all get fed up with him and throw him out and we'll put someone else in. That's the whole idea of democracy. And it's based on the idea of the rulers are not rulers because they have a, a right to be rulers. They are doing it in trust for us, for future generations. This operates both at the level of national politics with Whigs and Tories and now Labour and Conservative and so on. But it also operated at another level which is hardly ever noticed in relation to the British Empire and to the oddness of the British Empire. Almost all empires belong to the metropolitan country. The French Empire was French. The Spanish Empire was Spanish. They conquered it. That was theirs. There's an odd tinge to the British Empire which is that it doesn't belong to Britain. It's held in trust for the people. These are mandate, trust mandates. Um, I can't go into this, but Maitland describes it a bit. Uh, he s cites contemporary no newspapers which are endlessly saying this African colony or India or something, we hold it in trust and of course one day the people will um, become, uh, look after themselves. It's just a, a temporary trust we have and this helps explain lots of things to me. For instance, the way in which the British Empire was dismantled so bloodlessly relatively to some empires. The blood in India was caused by undue stupid haste, but it wasn't caused by resistance. And so apart from the odd, very small massacre of natives, as in one case in India, on the whole the British were almost, were usually accused of being in an unseemly haste to get rid of their empire. As soon as the people themselves started saying, we are ready to take over, they cleared off. And so it was dismantled rather quickly, very quickly after the Second World War. Um, and it was because, partly by, because of this idea that it actually it wasn't yours, it was held in trust. So Maitland argued that it was also of immense indirect significance in another sphere, and that is in the relation between politics and belief. The extraordinary development of religious toleration, which he believed was one of the glories of Anglo-American history, as did Tocqueville, is related to the development of trust. Now you, want, you may wonder, well, how is that possible? Well, it's again another trap that as civilizations become richer and more powerful, the link between the established political entities and the established religious entities usually gets closer and closer. They've got a vested interest in setting up in a kind of pact, a Caesaro-Papist pact, Caesar and the papacy, because they, they both, so they start joining together. And so religious unorthodoxy becomes political unorthodoxy and vice versa. A theocratic state, and it's not confined to Catholic societies, obviously, you know of other examples, nor is it in the West confined to the Catholics, the Calvinists became the same in Scotland. So there's a big puzzle as to how the sectarian pluralism, which we now see around us where each person is supposed to have freedom of conscience and decide and if they want to go to church they can go to church, if they don't, how did that emerge? Because most civilizations, they got richer, would have stopped that. Just as we see in the Falun Gong in China being the state trying to repress them. So how did this freedom of conscience emerge? Maitland showed how the trust concept became the defense of religious nonconformity. It emerged through the development of nonconformist sectarianism in the West, particularly in the 17th century. 
minority religious organizations emerge. Now, it's no good just having a religious organization if you can't have any entity. If you, all you can do is stand in the middle of the field occasionally and shout um, out your beliefs and then the police come along. You won't get anywhere. What you need is a building, you need property, you need regularity, you need an organization, you need a name, you need a fictitious entity. For example, a place of worship. These have to be funded and maintained and the state is unlikely to allow it, it opts for its dogma and then un, is unlikely to allow any competitors into this field just as the church is unlikely and yet from the 17th century in the west there emerged all sorts of sects Baptists, Quakers, Methodists and others flourished and they did so by setting up trusts groups of trustees ran their affairs and were recognized by the law you could have an owner chapel you could pass it on you could gather in a certain stipend for your minister, and so on. And Maitland argued that without the le this legal le loophole, the whole of nonconformity would have been crushed. So religious liberty and the trust was deeply tied together. That's in, if you're interested in that, Collected Papers, Volume 3, page 3636. Many of the nonconformists were famously active in the development of trade and industry that helped shape the new industrial world. So it had another influence in that way. And indeed the influence on economics of the trust is immense. And he goes into this. This is a period when the West is expanding its world trade is in, and the development of uh, the growth and development of industrialism is just occurring. And it would have clearly made an enormous difference if you could develop devices that pool people's cooperative labor and work together, some fictitious entities, and this is which are not controlled by the state. You need new insurance facilities to alleviate the risks of trade and exploration, new banking institutions, new ways of owning stock and, sh and shares, and this all emerged from the trust. It's an amazing fact, but almost all these devices, and he gives a number of examples. I'll give you two which you would never have come across. The he traces the history of the late 17th century coffee house owned by Edward Lloyd. This became embodied in the mid-18th century in a small trust fund. In 1811, a trust deed with 1,100 signatures was made. So was developed Lloyd's insurance. And many of the banks, the building societies, the Halifax insurance firms, the Sun Alliance Insurance Company, all these were trusts which allowed people to work together. Another example is the London Stock Exchange. He describes how it grew again from a meeting of like-minded people in the in an 18th century coffee house and then was embodied in a group of trustees. In 1877 there was a move to change it and get it uh, given a, a government charter or incorporation but the members of the Stock Exchange did not want this change and so it remained a trust which it does I think to this day. So it forms a, a, a way of setting up economic units for mutual strength and it avoids monopolies. The alternative is for the state to say, well, yes, we realize you've got to be protected. We will give you a monopoly in salt or a monopoly in this or a monopoly in that. The problem with monopolies is it stops any competition. Everyone else is prevented from doing the same thing because it's a state monopoly. Trusts don't have this anti-monopolistic tendency. If I form a trust to form the East India Company, 
if someone else wants to form an East India Company, um, they can do the same thing. You can have as many trusts as you like. It's up to individuals. Another area which he talked about and which is very important is social liberties. One of the most extraordinary features which you may not have thought about about Anglo-American civilization is the proliferation of clubs, associations and charitable and other activities. And Maitland goes into this. Half-jokingly, he described the jockey club, which was set up when a group of trustees took over the running of a race course on Newmarket Heath, as becoming a more august tribunal in England than the House of Lords. The vast flourishing, you may never have thought about it, but why are almost all the team competitive games in the world developed in 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century England and then America? Cricket, the Middlesex Cricket Club, football, rugby, are all linked to this. They, they both express the idea of competitive, cooperative kind of behavior, and also they usually don't flourish unless they have a clubhouse and a place to go and have a drink after you've got muddy and wet and cold. Also, you get the development on intellectual activities. Many of the early clubs and associations were had artistic or intellectual aims. The Royal Society, which was so formative in the development of the scientific revolution in the 17th century, the British Academy, the numerous regional literary and scientific clubs which were so important in the, in the 19th 18th, 19th century, the Lunar Society, where Wedgwood, Bolton, Watt, Priestley and others went. All these sorts of things were the same idea. So what you got was uh, these kinds of developments. Another thing he talks about was the way in which the trust allowed a society be, to be flexible and to change um, gradually to test out and experiment with things because you've got the legal system which is always rather rigid and then these trust-like institutions which interface with it. So the trust allowed new ways of dealing with many of the most important aspects of life to be de developed within a kind of protective shell until they proved themselves. And when they were uh, seen to work then the rigid law was changed. He gives examples of this which have affected your lives it in effect allowed the landowner to devise land by will until at length you got the, the development of the will. It in effect gave married women the right to hold property in their own right until at length the laws were changed. It in effect allowed people to form joint stock companies and limited liability until the law was changed. But above all, and this is the last point I want to make, um, it spread trust no system is going to work if people are, are constantly suspicious, um, individualistically competitive, always distrusting information from other people and always having to have everything written down. This is the bane of many civilizations still, many parts of the world still. You've heard about it in the former Soviet Union. It's true in much of China, India, and other societies I know. You can't really trust people. You can trust them in small things, but... The idea that you can trust someone's word, that you can um, take risks with capital and so on, is odd. What happened here was the development of institutions which were both based on the idea that you can trust people and encourage trust in people. 
Um, if you're interested in that aspect, the, the work of Fukuyama, who wrote a famous book on the end of history, but he also wrote a book called Trust. And he's a Rand Corporation economist, Japanese, therefore, and who see, sees parallels with Japan. But he argues, and so does Maitland, that the development of a trusting attitude, an assumption of trust, which is so difficult to develop, is related to the development of these many trust-like organizations. So the key, the glue to modern civilization is an accidental legal development which allows us both to belong to something and not to belong to something. And it's well illustrated today by the fact that some of you are here, and that's fine. Some of you are standing outside with placards, and that's fine. If you'd been standing outside with placards in 1900 in France, you'd be, the police would have arrived. You were not allowed to meet in, in Paris or France in 1900, more than three people constituted a rebellion or a revolution or something, so you weren't allowed to meet. So both the privilege of standing there, and for those who have been standing there, high, um, and also the privilege of coming here is related to all these things.